Wow, thank you for coming tonight. I'm going to leave this here because Joanna will need it. Yeah, so thank you. Wow, thank you, Angel, Lee and Angel Davis, and Lee and Lisa for welcoming us and all of you. It's just been great, and we feel really um, at home with the church. I mean, we do. It's just like, wow, I would go to this church. This is cool. So thanks for having us. And the women had the scene event today talking about reaching out to Muslim women, and that was a great su success. And uh, Joanne and Candy and Lisa and Angel, and it was great. So what are we doing here tonight? Well, we're here because God's changing the planet radically. It's pretty amazing what's happening in our lifetime. So i got to set the scene as we pull up the PowerPoint. Thanks, guys. So I grew up, my dad was an FBI agent, okay? So I grew up organized crime was around us. I was born in Chicago. Dad fought the mafia. And then um, Chicago has a lot of business there with the mafia. And then we moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, and um, because the mafia took over the hotels, okay? So I went to Catholic school, and I was the only boy in my third grade class that didn't have an Italian last name. It was Costello, Serino, Parisi, Tagano, Romeo, Genovese, you know that family, that's an interesting family. So that's what I was around, I was the Fed kid. So uh, in my life, because I had an FBI father, I was guilty until proven innocent, you know? That's, that's how it worked for me, I could never get away with anything. So I was saved through a young life and Billy Graham, um, in my senior year. And by the way, pray tomorrow at noon for the service because it is quite possible that more people are going to hear the gospel at one time than ever before in history. Yeah, because it's a global event. So we're honored to be going to this. We'd have to dash out afterwards and head to Charlotte and going to get to go to the funeral. We're thrilled, but uh, just to hear about Billy's life and ministry. But global television event, this is like a president dying. I mean, it's really something. So, But it's going to be broadcast around the world. And some of our friends around the globe have been saying that they realize they can get the, the service. They will preach the gospel. They will bring it. So pray that hearts are moved. And you have to wonder in the heavenlies what's going to happen. I mean, think about it really. In a span of about eight months, we've celebrated 500-year uh, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. In May, Israel will be 70 years old. And then also in the midst of this time span, the world's greatest evangelist has gone home, left planet Earth. You wonder what's going to happen. Is there going to be a revival? Is there a coming judgment? We know ultimately... But God is busy reaching the nations. And so we were, you know, I was a pastor, Joanne and I, we have six kids, three boys, three girls, the Brady Bunch. We didn't have Alice the maid, couldn't afford her. But so that's what our life was like. And I went to Israel in 95 and it blew my mind. And God started giving us a heart for the people in the Middle East. So a couple of months before 9-11, uh, God called us to leave and to go into missions in the Middle East. And then 9-11 happened. And so I left a senior pastor position. We're raising support. We don't know what we're doing other than God just called us. You know, Abraham and Sarah, we're going. We don't know what it looks like, but we're going. And then 9-11 happened. And uh, some of you were actually born when that happened. There's a lot of young people here. But um, so that, that happens. And I remember immediately after that, we have people uh, trying to talk us out of going to the Middle East. You know, like, you can't go. It's too dangerous. They hate Christians. They'll hate Americans. You can't go. And I remember once a, a lady knocked on the door, and we opened the door, and there was nobody there, and she was laying in the grass crying, please don't go. You have six kids. You're being irresponsible. And then one guy just said, you know, you're just stupid for going to the Middle East. You're so stupid. And that was my father, of course. But anyway. <laughs> Is dead set against it. But we knew that God was calling us, and immediately we get there, and life just changed for us. Yes, there is terrorism, but let me just tell you something. The news and television is paralyzing us because people are seeing Muslims that everybody's a terrorist. That is a small group. It's affected our lives, no doubt. We're blacklisted in Syria. We've had a lot of close calls. A car bomb went up off right next to Joanne in Kabul, Afghanistan. It could have killed her. It was in the car next to her. So many things like that have happened, but we found out that Muslims are really open to the gospel more than ever before. Did you know 
that in the last 10 years more Muslims have come to faith in Christ than in the last 1400 years of Islam. So God's up to something. And really, when you look at Jewish people, more Jews have come to faith in Christ in the last 20 years than in the last 2,000 years. So God's moving. Whatever he starts, he finishes. The gospel started there, went around the globe, kind of westward expansion, as the Puritans said. Now it's coming back to an area that needs it so badly. And crazily enough, with all the terrorist regimes and the refugee crisis and all the things happening in the Middle East, the threat of war all the time, um, things are happening. And Southern Baptists have told us that the fastest growing region per capita in the world with the gospel people coming to faith in Christ is in the Middle East. That's what's happening. It's the Middle East. Muslims are coming to faith in Christ. So I got to tell you, I didn't know what I was doing. I was a pastor. I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but I was a pastor. I just, that's what I knew. I thought missionaries were kind of weird, really. Uh, actually, you know, I just didn't know that much about, but God called us to be missionaries, you know. So now we're weird. And uh, we went out there and uh, I mean, it's just like right after 9-11. And flying to Israel, done a lot of Bible tours there, but I'd never been in the Gaza Strip. So I'm reading Voice of the Martyrs magazine. It's 2001. It's a couple of months after 9-11. And it says the Gaza Strip is the most dangerous place for Christians on planet Earth right now. And that's where we were going. And I was like, dang it. Are you kidding? I wish I would have gotten this a week ago. I'm on the plane. It's way too late. So we go. We get into Israel. We go into Gaza. Very first day we're there. And I met my new best buddy. His name is Hussein. He's an MBB, Muslim background believer. And I mean, we're just getting there. This is it. It's my first, I guess it's my first day as a missionary, really. And so we get there and we have some lunch. And Hussein says, Tom, let's go down to Yasser Arafat's mosque and share the gospel with the Muslims coming out after Friday prayer. So I was like, okay. So it begins, you know. So we take off and go. And uh, we're driving at Gaza, it's like another planet. There's 11 terrorist groups that rule there, and you probably heard of Hamas, but we're driving down the street, and there's George Bush hanging in flames, and the Prime Minister of Israel, Ariel Sharon, in effigy. And, and so we kind of took a quick detour, and we got down to the mosque, and all of a sudden, there's Muslims around us talking, fascinated, asking questions, and it's really going well. I mean, it's just going well. I can't believe it that they want to talk and we can have a dialogue and there's some openness and we're trying to build a bridge. And then Hussein pulled me back and said, hey, Tom, you know, what we're doing is illegal. And um, so we could go to jail for this. But really, I think everybody should go to jail at least once for sharing their faith, don't you think? And yeah, right. Okay. You know, so um, but then. Probably like 30 minutes later, the mood changed. And you could just see the complexion of people change. And it was the Muslim imams. It was the religious, observant Muslims that were there, the leaders, the imams and the sheikhs. And they're kind of crowding around us. And there's anger. And there's men that are pointing their fingers. And they're pulling out their Quran. And they're getting closer and closer. And I remember Hussein pulled me back and said, hey, Tom, this is not good. This, these guys are Hamas. He's whispering. And they're really mad. Did you notice this is not going real well? And I said, I saw that. And he said, uh, they could try to hurt us. And um, they might even try to kill us. But I'm ready to die for Jesus. And you're a missionary. You're ready to die for Jesus, right? And I said... Yes. <laughs> Do you mean right now? Am I like this minute? And the thought that went through my mind was, what a short career. <laughs> that was it. It was actually one day. And, uh, but obviously, we survived. But I got on a plane and went back home. And Hussein stayed and worked in the nine refugee camps where there were fanatical Muslims that, that wanted to hurt him. And he was leading Muslims to faith in Christ. And Amazing things were happening. So let's see if we can go to this. Wherever we go around the world, we get this question asked. Do you think Jesus is coming back in our lifetime? 
And I say, I don't know, but he's getting closer. And here's three things that I think are kind of like indicator lights on your dashboard, like hands and a clock that show us, wow, it's getting late. We need to get our act together. So God's time clock. Okay, the next one, if you would. Uh, Israel is like, if you look at, there's three hands on the clock. There's the hour hand, the minute hand, the hand that beats the seconds. Interestingly enough, with the clock, they all go at different speeds. But in the end, they all end up at the same place at the same time. And that's what's going to happen for us. When all of these three end up at the same place, Jesus is going to come back. So Israel is the hour hand. Okay, next one, if you would. You see at the end in Jeremiah and some of the books of the Bible in the Old Testament that talk about what's going to happen to Israel. And they're going to be surrounded. But somehow God is going to come and... Um, and protect them. So look at anti-Semitism. There's only one race on the planet where there is a word reserved for them for prejudice. It's the Jews, anti-Semitism growing. In the Middle East, it says nearly 50% of Muslims harbor anti-Semitic uh, attitudes toward Jews, about 24% of Christians. I, I would think that 49% is, is much higher. But listen to this, listen to these verses out of Jeremiah 31. 35 to um, 37. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea and so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. And then he goes on. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens can be measured above and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel. And then God adds this P.S. because of all they have done, declares the Lord. So, hey, listen, they killed the prophets. They killed the messiahs. They were disobedient. Babylonian captivity, Assyrian captivity. If it was up to the Jewish performance, God would have said, forget it. You're out of it. Never again will I protect you or do anything. But in the end, he comes back and fights for them. And the Lord says, there's still a nation. Did they blow it? Yes, they did. But there's good news in Israel. I have a friend that knew when there was less than 20 Jewish believers in Israel. Less than 20. This is where the gospel started. Less than 20. Do you know how many there are today? 35,000. The gospel's on the move in Israel, and that's good news. Okay, next one, if you would. So um, this was in the news. This was an Israeli soldier. His name is Galat Shalit. He was next to uh, Gaza, where the, the fence is, and wasn't really paying attention. There's some tunnels that Hamas has dug that come out of the Gaza Strip. They grabbed him, they took him, and he sat in a jail that Hamas had rigged with explosives for five and a half years. Five and a half years he was there, and that's him when he was released, uh, saluting Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Look how skinny he is. But Israel decided to swap prisoners. They're never going to get him. If they go in and try to fight for him, they'll just kill him. So let's swap prisoners. So did they swap one Palestinian for one Jewish soldier, or was it 10? No, I don't know if you remember, Pastor, but it was over 1,000. 1,000 Palestinians that had been terrorists. They, they actually, 1,023, I think it was, that they swapped for one person. And you think, you got to be kidding. Why would you do that? And But they did it. They valued the life of that soldier. Let's go to the next one. So we were doing a medical clinic, okay? There's a couple of our boys, Tommy and Josh, next to the man that is Arab in the middle. And so we're doing a medical clinic. We go into the West Bank. Tommy and Josh work with us Uncharted, And they've located an area where there's 72 villages that have had no access to the gospel in the West Bank. So West Bank is biblical uh, Samaria and Judea. So like on your Bible maps, that's where it is. It's called the West Bank today. So there's no gospel witness. Here's the crazy thing. You know how close they are to Nazareth, where Jesus lived? Within about 20 miles. 
and they know nothing about him. So they started working in these villages, and it's so cool. We do, um, we go in and ask the imam if we can do a medical clinic, and then we do an eyeglass clinic. So these are like 100% Muslim villages. We go in, do an eyeglass clinic, we have them trying a pair of glasses, and we have them read John 3.16 in Arabic. So then we say, okay, try it, read it, Re read it out loud, and they read it. Okay, good, okay, let's try these glasses. Better or worse, you know, read this first. You know, and so they do it seven times, and and so here we are at this medical clinic. This this guy on the left is actually a personal bodyguard for Mahmoud Abbas, Palestinian president. He meets Tommy, her son, right next to me, and says, "I want you to come to my uncle's house. He would like to meet you." And he says, "Okay." And he goes, "He's actually pretty famous." And Tommy said, "Well, who is he?" And he said, "He's one of the one thousand prisoners that was swapped for Galad Shalit." He was serving a life sentence, had been in for 23 years, killed about 30 Israelis, but he wants to meet you guys. And so Tommy said, hey dad, guess what? We're having tea with the terrorists today. And so we went and there we sat in his home and his wife served us tea and cookies and all that. And as soon as we sat down, we realized something, kind of the duh moment. He's a human being, right? He's a human being. Did he do some bad stuff? Yeah, really bad stuff. He wanted to say, I'm not a terrorist. He wanted to say that. We said, okay, let's hear your story. And then as we're listening to him, I'm praying, Lord, how are we going to turn the corner? How are we going to get the gospel out? I mean, we're going to have to be clever. We're going to have to be wise. We're going to pray about this. Josh was in the red coat there, our other son. And he just blurts this out. He goes, hey, Mahmoud, I'll tell you what we're really doing in your village. We're trying to bring Jesus to everyone here. So I thought... Okay, we begin, you know, we're, we're in now, so no turning back now. And actually, we start telling the gospel through stories. If I per pulled out my Bible, that would freak him out, you know? Ooh, I don't know about that book, but we just said, hey, Mahmoud, can we tell you a story? Yeah. Okay, this is a true story from the word of God. Jesus was in a boat one day, and the wind started whipping, and the waves started splashing, and all of a sudden... His friends got really nervous that they were going to sink. And they look over and there's Jesus. He's sound asleep. You know the story, right? And so we go through it. And then at the end say, and Mahmoud, that's a true story from the word of God. And then we ask him questions. Did you like that story? What did you think? And you know what we're doing? We're getting them into the word. That's the power. That's, that's where they're going to have this encounter with Christ. And he's answering questions and all that. He finally asked us, to pray for him. Would you pray for me? Hasn't come to faith in Christ, but we're praying that we get to spend more time with him. Is God capable of reaching a terrorist? Hey, look at Saul became Paul, right? He was killing Christians. Okay, next one if you would. Oh wow, this is in the Gaza Strip. I went into a restaurant. These are four well-known terrorists. Uh, Yasser Arafat, next to him, uh, he was head of the Palestinian Authority, uh, George Habash. People's uh, popular front for the people's liberation of Palestine, uh, Ramadan Shalom, Shalom next to him, the Islamic Jihad, he's the leader of that terrorist group, and then the next one was Sheikh Yassin, who was, he's dead now, but was the spiritual leader of Hamas. These are the, this was in a family restaurant. These are their heroes, and I remember walking in and going, wow, I mean, that's like a terrorist Mount Rushmore or something, you know? This is like the most infamous, but that's what they know. That's all they've been conditioned to. Okay, next one, if you would. So what is that, guys? Anybody know? Anybody been to Israel? Okay, what, what do you think it is? Yeah, Dome of the Rock. Actually not. It's an exact replica in southern Lebanon. So if this is the map, and here's the Mediterranean, you got Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Syria, okay? Hezbollah, the terrorist group that's financed by Iran, is in southern Lebanon, shooting into Israel, okay? And so Iran came in and built an exact replica of what is in Jerusalem. And why did they do that? See those mountains in the background? It's kind of hazy there. That's actually Israel you're looking into. They want the Hezbollah soldiers to see that 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 it's not a mosque, but it's a shrine. They want them to see that as they're looking into Israel to remember this. The battle's not for northern Israel. The battle's not for the Jezreel Valley, Armageddon, where that's going to be. The battle is for Jerusalem. They want that in their mind. 
That's the Iranian flag on the top of that exact replica, the Dome of the Rock. Okay, next one, if you would. So we were there when um, President Trump said that they were going to recognize the capital of Israel in Jerusalem. And just to show you the two different sides, we were close to that. We went down. It was night. We got a picture there. Joanna and I, there were Jewish people celebrating all over. The capital is Jerusalem. That's where the Knesset is. That's where Benjamin Netanyahu lived. They've treated it that way. They just haven't had the world recognition. So we went down. There were all these Jewish people hugging, jumping up and down. I got Jewish kisses all over the place. And um, But then, not far from there, is the Palestinian side. Quiet. Heartbreaking to see. And listen, folks. Both sides have legitimate claims. If you go with us to work in Israel, you know what our goal is for you? That you will come back and love Israel and you will love the Palestinians. And you know why? Because God's heart is big enough to love them both. He really does. And he's bringing them together. Some things are happening where there's some great strides forward. One of the most exciting days that I ever had was being in Jerusalem for uh, on Easter. And for those of you that went to Israel, did you go to the garden tomb? You know where the garden tomb is? So we were there and it's resurrection day in Jerusalem. Does it get any better than that, right? So we're there and there's worship and there's people from all different nations. And when the worship's over, a Palestinian walked to the microphone, a Palestinian pastor. Before he came to Jesus, he was in four different terrorist groups. And a Jewish pastor, a Messianic pastor, came to the microphone with his yarmulke on. He was in the Israeli Defense Forces when this guy was in the terrorist groups. They knew each other. They both came to Jesus, put their arms around each other. One prayed in Hebrew, one prayed in Arabic. And man, there wasn't a dry eye at the garden tomb. And I thought, you know what? If the world can see, this can be made whole. This can be made right. They will understand the power uh, of the gospel. So it's a political hot potato. Israel, Jerusalem's been the capital, but that's the way it is today because of religion and politics and all that. Okay, next one, if you would. God's time clock. Let's look at the second hand, which would be the hour hand, the church and the Great Commission. So we're here to fulfill the Great Commission. I can remember when there were 6,000 unengaged, unreached people groups. Nobody unengaged means nobody's working with them. Unreached, less than 2% believers, probably no percent believers. And now there is less than uh, 2,000 that are unengaged, unreached. The church, the Great Commission, this is what we've been called to do. And this is so simple. We shouldn't freak out that Muslims are coming to Jesus or Jews are or the Gospels uh, flourishing in the Middle East. We shouldn't because Jesus said this in Matthew 16. He said, um, I will, let's see, he said, uh, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And what else did he say? And the gates of hell will not stand against it. I will. Jesus said, I will do this. And the gates of hell, they're like Kleenex. It's like cellophane. This is nothing for Jesus to bust through. So in 1979, the Ayatollah comes in and Iran becomes the Islamic Republic of Iran. It had been a monarchy, fairly friendly to the West. The Ayatollah comes in off a jet in, from France and uh, they decide it's the Islamic Republic. Sharia law, women are taken to prison with this much hair showing, given 80 lashes for just that. Sharia law, everything, and they went from a pretty fairly normal uh, country to just strict Sharia law, and they realized everything had changed. And one of the first things the Ayatollah said, if you ever see the Ayatollah, it means, it means tool of God. He's the political and spiritual leader. He said this, he said, we're all Muslim now. There will never be two religions in Iran. The church, we will crush it. We will squash it and put it out of its existence. It'll never be, everyone will be Muslim. There's not two religions anymore, there's one. So we knew of maybe 500 to maybe a couple of thousand born again believers in Iran. But the Ayatollah said, I'm gonna crush the church. 
Here's the amazing thing. We're very strange people. When the enemy kicks us, when he persecutes us, when he throws us in jail, when he kills us, you know what happens to the church? We grow. We do. When you look at persecution, you know what you always see growing next to it? Harvest. They're like identical twins. It's the harvest. Satan's going to try to blow back and shut that door. And it doesn't work. It doesn't. And so the Ayatollah says, we will crush the church. But what did Jesus say? I will build my church. So who are you putting your money on, folks? Seriously, you think the Ayatollah is going to block Jesus or the Messiah is sitting on the throne biting his nails, nervous about Iran, that they're ready to go nuclear. No, the church is growing. And today, the fastest growing church per capita is in the nation of Iran. Two to three million believers in Iran. The church, the Great Commission, it's working. Okay, let's go to the next one, if you would. Oh, you got to hear this story. This is the miracle of the Mediterranean, okay? So um, we do, at our ministry in Charted, we do breakaway conferences. We try to take spiritual leaders, pastors, and church planners off the front lines and bring them to a safe place for five days to a week. So we've been able to do that with believers in Syria, uh, Egypt. We're going to do it with believers on the front lines in Jordan. We're going to do that this year. We just give them a week to just rest, get in the word, worship, all of that. It's awesome. So we did that with 110 leaders from Syria last year. So this woman, the taller one in the purple sweater, her name is Raja, comes from Syria. And um, the war had been going on for six years there. And so I'm a meticulous note taker because I write stories. So I used to do it with like legal paths, you know, okay, start over, tell me your story. Now I do it on my phone, but Raja told this story. And I went and asked different pastors. I said, did this really happen? They said, yeah, it's all over Syria. This is an amazing story. How many of you remember uh, a little over a year ago, the picture of the little boy that was two years old that washed up on the beach that had drowned in the Mediterranean. Do you remember seeing that? Wave at me if you did, okay? In his little shoes, and it was just so heartbreaking. 4,000 Syrians died in the Mediterranean Sea last year, escaping from the war in Syria. They got in rubber rafts, they took off, they didn't make it. Well, Raja's son calls her one night and says, we're in a city, they lived in the, <clears throat> in the coast. 70,000 young people have been killed in our city. There's no jobs. Uh, the water's been cut. We saw children drinking out of mud puddles in the street yesterday. There's no opportunity. We, we have to go. We just have to go. We're getting in a rubber raft. And we're going across the Mediterranean tonight. We're hopefully going to get to Turkey, get on the refugee route, try to get to Germany and get asylum, get citizenship. At least we'll be able to feed our family. So anyway, Raja went to her knees. She lived in a different place of Syria and started to pray. Lord, you got to do something. You got to save them. You got to protect them. They go out in this rubber raft and they get out in the Mediterranean. They've been out for hours, middle of the night. And all of a sudden they look and see this incredibly large freighter ship coming right at them like bearing down on them. So they're rowing as fast as they can to get out of the way and they barely make it. I mean, the big ship's going by, but it didn't hit them. But then it went past and the waves and the wakes just flipped that rubber raft up into the air and they all went flying. So they have a little boy and his name is Ali. He was just turning three years old. Ali has never spoken. He didn't once say mommy and daddy. But um, he's so traumatized by the war, seeing dead bodies, hearing explosions every day in Syria, that he doesn't speak. The family goes flying, and they're calling for Raja. He doesn't speak. He doesn't swim. He's got to be dead. They're treading water. They don't even have a flashlight. They're yelling for him. Nothing, nothing. Some fishermen are fishing, and they rev up their boats, and they go out to the cries. But because of the waves and stuff, it takes them about 10 minutes to get there. And Raja, her son and daughter-in-law, this boat comes up, and it's a large boat. And he's pulling them in, and they're just crying. We can't believe it. Ali, we couldn't find him. We didn't even see him. We didn't hear a peep. And they look, and there's Ali sitting in the boat. There's Ali sitting in the boat, and they couldn't believe it. What, what in the world happened? They're hugging him, and the fisherman said, 
I, I don't know. I heard the cries for help and I came out and they said, but he doesn't swim. And he said, well, he was, he was floating on his back. And I, I used the first one I saw, I put him in the boat and he looks like he's okay. And they, like, he doesn't swim, this couldn't happen. How did this happen to Ali? And Ali spoke for the first time and he said, Jesus was there in the water waiting for me. Jesus was there and he lifted me up. And the first time he spoke, and what was the first word that he said? Jesus, Jesus. Jesus was there under the water. The man in a white robe, he lifted me up. And then he said to his parents, he smiled at me. And that family that night decided that if Jesus is powerful enough to save them in the open sea, he's powerful enough to save him in Syria. They went back. And they stayed there. And don't you want to follow that kid's life? I mean, is this the next Apostle Paul, right? You know, by the way, he's never stopped talking since then. He talks in complete sentences. All of that's gone. In fact, his parents say he talks all the time. He wish he would tone it down a little bit, you know. And he tells everyone about Jesus. He'll go into above ground churches and see a picture. That's the one that saved me. That's Jesus. Amazing. Let's go to the next picture, if you would. I think Joanne told this story today, but I want you to come up and tell it for those that didn't get to hear it. And for those of you that heard it again, you'll never forget it here in a second time. This is my wife, Joanne. Hey, everyone. How you doing? Oh, I see why Tom's looking this way. There's more of you sitting over here than here. So I'm going to focus <laughs> on you guys so you don't feel apart. <laughs> That's right, you are not forgotten. <laughs> well, pack your bags with me and let's take a little journey to Jordan. And in Jordan right now, there are many, many, many Syrian refugees and most of them have literally walked with the clothes on their back, the shoes on their feet, and the few things that they could carry in their hands. And they've walked from Syria to Jordan, absolutely heartbroken. Most of them have lost their family members and their loved ones, and they get to Jordan, and because their lives are, have so fallen apart, they are so open to Jesus. So it's an amazing opportunity for our leaders to reach out with them, reach out to them with the love of Christ. So we go into these little refugee homes, and I say little because they are hovels. I mean, they have nothing, they're refugees. And so we walked into this one home, and this is Shireen. And we walked in, and little Shireen, she was a tiny little thing, skinny little thing, a little bit older. And you can see the weight of the world is on her shoulders. Can you just see the distress in her face, just how sad she is? And she was a talking and a talking and a talking when I walked in. And through the translator, um, she would say something to me, and I would start to answer, but then she would start talking. She wouldn't even listen to the response because she was so distraught. So finally, I figured out the story. So she and, and one of her daughter-in-laws escaped from Syria to Jordan, but left behind in Syria are five other children, all the rest of her grandchildren, all the rest of her in-laws, and she is so afraid for them. They live in the city called Homs, and if you've seen pictures of Homs on the internet, it looks like Dresden, Germany, or something after the war. I mean, it's just totally obliterated. There's nothing left of the town. And so she is so fearful for the lives of her children. And so in this picture, she's just telling me, I have no hope. I have no hope. What is going to happen to my family? I may never see them again. And so as Tom said, you know, the truth of what we can share with them is in God's word. And so I began, through a translator, telling stories to her. And you know, don't we all love a story? You know, we're just drawn in when we hear a story. So this is what I said to her. I said, Shereen, can I tell you a story, a true story from the word of God? She said, okay. And she was listening. And I said, one day there was a woman. And this woman had been bleeding for 12 long years. And she tried everything she could to get well. She spent all of her money going to doctors. And not only did she not get better, she actually got worse. But she heard that there was this man, Jesus, in her village, and that he was healing people of all kinds of diseases. And she thought to herself, ah, maybe if I see this man, he can heal me and I'll be well. So she made her way to this crowd, and there were so many people gathered around him. She couldn't even see Jesus. And then she thought, I'm so unclean and so unworthy. I can't talk to him. So she thought, if I could just reach in and maybe just touch the edge of his garment, maybe I'd be healed. Well, you know how that story goes, right? But did you see how that pulls you in? You know that story, but you wanna to listen to it when you hear it that way, right? So that's what she did. She finally heard the truth of who Jesus was and that he could give her hope. 
So then after a few stories, I said, well, Shireen, can I tell you something else that's true from the word of God? And I told her all about who Jesus was, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, but that he came back to life and that she could have not only life eternal, but she could have hope. Well, when she was ready and she said, yes, I want to know Jesus. And she prayed right there on the spot with tears coming down her face and she gave her life to Christ. And this next picture is about two minutes after she prayed. Look at the difference. Yes, amen. She is now your sister in Christ. You will spend eternity with this dear woman. And look at the joy radiating out from her face. Those burdens have been lifted. And like I said earlier today, have her circumstances changed at all? No, obviously not, right? But the God of all hope has entered her heart and given her hope, not only for herself and her own soul, but for her family who's left back in Syria, who she is fervently praying for. And I think there's one more picture up there. I had to kiss her because she was just so darling. But you know, the real heroes of that story are our national leaders, our brothers and sisters who are Jordanian, who live in Jordan, and they meet with our new brothers and sisters every week, teaching them the word of God, teaching them how to live for Christ, teaching them what it means to be a follower of Christ, teaching them how to share Jesus with their family when they FaceTime them every week. So, isn't that cool? Not a sweet story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. So the hands and the clock, the dashboard gauges, God has a plan for Israel. If he didn't, uh, he wouldn't come back and fight for him in the end. And it's not based on their performance, but his character. God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna love you. Uh, and then the church and the Great Commission, it's going around the world. There is the potential that that could be completed in our lifetime. Here's the third hand, the persecution of the believers is the hand that beats the fastest actually and is happening more faster than really any of the hands on the clock christians are being killed 80 percent of religious persecution is against christians and jesus simply said this in john uh, the night that he was betrayed john 15 if the world hates you keep in mind that it hated me first this is logical they're going to hate you because they hate me. This is the war on Jesus, the persecution, thinking that it can stop the gospel message. But you know what? It doesn't stop the gospel message. It accelerates us. It, it makes us go faster. So we, we're not crushed by this. We, we are um, energized by this. And the gospel reaches out further. Let's just look at a couple of slides if we could here. Go ahead and do the next one. This is where Christians are facing extreme persecution. We work primarily in the Middle East, but then we started working in Korea with Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, we do a lot of work with Voice of the Martyrs, open doors. Uh, we say in the Middle East persecution, Christians are being persecuted, but you know what's happening in North Korea? They're being executed. Uh, if you even see a Bible, are asked by an official, it is a life sentence. And they do the three-generation policy. So if, if uh, someone comes to faith, it's their parents and their children, they all go to prison. They will work you and use you, and then when you can't do much, they just kill you. They're, uh, they're executing Christians. Okay, next one, if you would. These are some of our leaders. If you get the book, Standing in the Fire, the man to the left, his name is Hakeem. The only, uh, the, just the usual Damascus death threat. This is Hakeem, and the man next to him is, is Jamal Zarka, who's a former Muslim imam. That's a secret police that's questioning them. This is the last time we were in Syria. And sure enough, everywhere we went, secret police asking questions. In fact, Joanne snapped that camera out of the back of a van and didn't get arrested doing it. So that was cool. Okay, we always say in, in places like Syria and Iran, if you think you're being followed, you are. Okay, next one. The church in Mosul, the Christians that, uh, next one if you would, uh, they were given four options, convert to Islam, pay the jizzy tax, which is an Islamic protection tax, uh, pay us money and we'll protect you, leave or die. So we work with a lot of the Mosul Christians and they said, well, it's really simple if they said convert or die, we would have died. But there was the option to leave, so we thought, well, maybe God wants us 
to leave. But the way they identified them, they put the Arabic N letter on their house, the noon letter. And what that is, is to identify them as of the Nazarene. There it is. It's not a smiley face. It's the Arabic N letter. So every house that had that had to go. They gave them 24 hours. Next one, if you would. Then the UN came and made tents for them. And I love that. They went and got spray paint cans and put the Arabic noon on it. Hey, you didn't get that out of us. We're still Christians. You can't scare us. And they are so faithful. But think about this. For 2,000 years, we've had two symbols. The cross is who we are. The fish is what we do. We fish for people. The cross, Jesus, we're to carry our cross. Everything is about the cross. But because of their persecution, we have a third symbol the first time in 2,000 years. And I think it's a foreshadowing of what's coming. Jesus said, they're going to hate you because they hate me. It's coming around the world. It's probably coming here. Okay, next one, if you would. Next slide. These are some of the most sold children. I actually pulled that one off the internet. Okay, next one. Wow, how many of you remember this picture? Do you remember this? So this is the 21 martyrs, and they were from, 20 were from Egypt. One was from Ghana. And I remember seeing this on ABC News one night. Islamic State was very out there, media savvy. They wanted people to be afraid of them. And so they, they posted this video online, and they even Photoshopped themselves to look extra tall. There are certain pictures where they look like seven feet tall. And they marched these men on the beach and they killed them. And I remember seeing the video on television. They didn't show the killing. But immediately, my first thought was, oh, no, this is going to end terribly. This is awful. No, this is awful. They went to their death. And then I thought, wait a minute. What am I thinking? It says in Revelation, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb. They did, and the word of their testimony, they did not love life more than death. And so for 40 days, they were tortured and threatened and they didn't bend and they didn't break and they didn't convert to Islam. And when they went to their death for Jesus, the last words on their lips were Jesus. I, you probably didn't know this, but there were over a hundred that were captured. And those 21 are the only ones that didn't convert to Islam. And there were 20 Egyptians and one man from Ghana who, when he was captured, they all worked in the oil fields. When he was captured, was not a follower of Jesus. But he saw the torture. He heard the singing. He heard the scriptures being shared. And you know what? When they came to get him, he said this, if you're going to take them, you got to take me too. Because I follow Jesus now. And he went and died for his faith. How, how long had he been a Christian? Weeks? A few days? Maybe a month at most? And he was willing to die. So at Uncharted, we've started what we call the Orange Letter Campaign. Every year we pick a hot spot on earth where we can bless the persecuted church. Two years ago, it was Egypt. We went and visited the Egyptian widows and delivered letters. A year ago, it was Syria, working with the Syrian believers that have been through so much, the pastors, spiritual leaders. This year, we went and delivered letters to North Korean believers that defected from North Korea. Next year, it may be the widows in Nigeria. There's 16,000 Christian widows there. So we get on the radio, we do interviews, whatever, focus on the family, whatever, and invite people to write letters, and we take them. They're packed with scriptures. Let's go to this next one, if you would. I'll have Joanne come up. We went and delivered them to these widows. And let me tell you, we went to encourage them, but they encouraged us. My goodness. Do you ever find yourself in a place and you think, Lord, how did I get to be here? Who am I? And that's how we felt in the home of these precious, precious, precious women. And as Tom said, their husbands went to the oil fields to work in Turkey because they are so, so poor. Dirt floors, no indoor plumbing. They, they literally have nothing. But this precious, precious woman. First of all, let me back up. You know, 21 of these men were killed. Some of them were brothers. Yeah. Many were cousins. So some families lost more than one person. And when we went into this dear woman's home, she has four children. Two of them are twins. The youngest were five years old at the time. And she said the two goals that she and her husband had for their children was one, that they would love Jesus more than anything. And then two, that they would learn to, to read, that they would be educated. Because many of these widows are illiterate. 
Though they're illiterate, they know the word of God. They were quoting scripture to us, which is just precious. But we went into her home and she said, you know, initially when that happened, I thought I never want my children to see the video of what happened to their father. But she said, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, I want them to see this. I want my children to see that their father was as bold and as brave as a lion, that he loved Jesus so much that he was not willing to die and convert to Islam. He was willing to die for Jesus as opposed to saving his life to convert to Islam. I didn't say that right. And so she had her children watch that video of seeing their father beheaded. And I think the next picture, uh, oh, this is Takiya, 20 years old. She was pregnant with her sweet daughter Miriam when her husband, with Lucas, was killed. And doesn't she just have kind of a dignity about her? 20 years old, illiterate. Do you know what she said to us? She said, who am I? I am a young, poor woman from a village that no one's ever heard of. But who am I that I am so honored and so blessed that my husband was able to die for Jesus? Is that a deep faith or what? Her sweet little daughter never even got to meet her daddy. See the little roundup um, scroll in her hands? That's some of the letters that we got to bring to them. Some of them were translated into Arabic. Um, but yet, some of them, they, you know, they can't read anyway, so... One day, we've, hopefully someone's reading those letters to them. And I think there's one more picture. So this is Takiya's husband, Luke, or Lucas was his name. And what they would do is when that video was on the internet, they would take pictures of their loved ones. And then we would go into their homes and they would pull out their phone and say, this is my husband, this is my son. Talk about moving. But again, it wasn't a defeat. It was not a defeat. We are looking at it from our human perspective. And let me tell you, they are still grieving the loss of their loved ones. But this is a victory for the cross. You know, they are, as Revelation, dressed in those beautiful white robes of righteousness. And they are right there at the throne with Jesus, being honored in ways that we can't even fathom. And one day, we are going to meet them and hear their story. And don't you know, Jesus was right there with them when their life was taken. And before that knife cut through their throat, it cut through the throat of Jesus as he was standing before them. That's right. Amen. Thank you. Okay, if we can go to the next one. Uh, this is someone that had been a Syrian um, secret police that came to faith in Christ. Actually, write about him in Standing in the Fire. Okay, next one, if you would. So I want to say buckle your seatbelts. We're going to play a video, and it's from our leader, Farid Assad. Uh, his real name is Danny. He's from Syria. It's over a large network of pastors and leaders. They've seen amazing things happen with Alawites coming to faith in Christ, Druze coming to faith in Christ. They're split off religions from Islam and, of course, Muslims. But have you all heard that in Syria, the Islamic State and other terrorist groups have been crucifying Christians on crosses? He talks about it. He's seen it. And uh, you just got to watch this video, but buckle your seatbelt. It's, it's pretty rough going, okay? But it's the real story. If we could just click on the bottom left of the screen. There go. And it won't be sound for a couple of seconds, but it should come on. Thank you. 
So that's for Reed. We say he gets he gets more death threats than most people get mail. One time, thirty were spray painted on the front of his apartment. I remember he called me and said, "I have thirty new death threats." And I said, "Thirty? You counted? How do you know there's thirty? And he goes, "Oh, they spray painted them and numbered them on the front of my house." That's the life he lives. But so faithful and challenged the ten leaders there. You can go, you can leave Syria if you want to. We'll probably end up dying if we stay. And so he gave him a week to pray and fast. And so I know you can't get it all with, the, with his, um, his interpreting English. That's his third or fourth language. But after a week, he came back to see if any of the 10 were gonna stay or if they were gonna leave the country with their wives and families. And 
the 10 had gone out and recruited 15 more. That's what he was talking about. The 25 that said, we're going to stay here because Jesus is the answer to Syria and we're probably going to die. So that's when they pitched their money together and they built a graveyard. And so when we correspond with them, when we get texts or emails or WhatsApp or whatever, they'll always tell us, uh, he is moving. You know, they have to be careful with security because everything's watched. He's moving. Um, we have new friends here. That means Muslims are coming to faith in Christ. And then he always says, and oh, some more good news, the graveyard's still empty. And God has just protected him. His full story is in standing in the fire. He's protected them and they're God's men in Syria. So as we close tonight, what does this have to do with you? We're talking about God's time clock. The three hands are going around the clock and they'll all come in sync together at midnight and Jesus comes back. So many Jews, it tells us in scripture, will turn to Jesus and re really receive the Messiah. It says in Zechariah, they will look upon him whom they pierced and they'll get it. My gosh, he was the Messiah. We missed it. And so God still has promises to Israel. He's called the church to fulfill the Great Commission. That's why we're here. That's what we do. That's what Jesus said was our job. It could be completed in our lifetime. In the midst of it, in that last hand, is persecution. It's coming and it's already here in America. People ask that, will we be persecuted in America? It's already happened. Uh, three different Muslims that came to faith in Christ were killed by their families. And there's court cases around America where their families just put them out, got rid of them. Cases are in court. The persecution is happening. So what do we do with all of this? Well, I would say, number one, God's calling us to pray. Because never before, like we said in the beginning, have Muslims been more open to the gospel. So you're going to watch the news or you're going to hear the reality on the ground like this. And it's going to be possibly news that kind of shakes you. I don't know what I should do. Remember, folks, we can't take our world view from the news. We take it from the Bible, right? And so... Jesus said he's going to build his church and he's doing it in some of the most dangerous spots in the world. So let's pray for them. We may not be experiencing persecution, but Paul said if one of us suffers, we all suffer, right? So let's put our arms around brothers and sisters and pray for them. How many of you have Facebook? How many of you have Facebook? Raise your hands. Okay, it's church, so you can't lie. Let's see again. Oh, a few more. Okay, so anyway, you can get on Facebook, 838, the number 8. 30 spelled out in the eight. We set our watches and pray every night at 8.38 p.m. for Romans 8.38 and 39, um, where uh, Paul says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We think of that verse, we pray for them and, and realize that they're going through difficult times. Think about being in prison in North Korea, a life sentence there with no heat, and it's 20 below zero, and they're praising God in these prisons, and one of these days they'll die. We're gonna pray for them. If you like that Facebook page, you'll get updates every day. We take you to the front lines and give you the latest stories, people we work with, other stories. You can pray. We all need to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. It's growing and growing and growing. You can do that. Secondly, uh, you can go. You can be involved. We say this at Uncharted, the Muslims are coming, the Muslims are coming, the Muslims are here. They're here and they're not leaving. And you know what? You can reach out to them and share the love of Christ with them. Many of them are marginalized, don't have friends. We had two friends, Jay and Marcia, that never really thought about working with Muslims or reaching out to them. But then they realized that there was a family on their block that had lived there for seven years that they'd never even talked to. They were so ashamed, I can't believe it. So they went and knocked on their door and invited them over for dinner. And they came. And it was a husband and wife, they had two kids, and they came for dinner and they tried to do it Middle Eastern, you know, hummus and all of that stuff. And so they did it, they brought them over. They had two kids that were just wild that night, just like out of control and knocking things over on the table and hard to sit still in the chair. And, and Jay said this, it was like they drank Red Bull on the way over. They were just wired and finally the mom said, I'm so sorry. I can't believe the kids are just hyper, but you know, we've lived in America for almost eight years now and you're the first people to ever invite us into their home. Isn't that heartbreaking? 
And Jay said, hey, I wasn't the only one. There was other believers on the block, but they were ignored. They were marginalized. Reach out. Don't be afraid. Jesus wants you to do that. Um, and, and then you can go. You can go with us to the Middle East. You can go and make a difference. Go on one of our trips. But you really don't even have to travel far to reach Muslims or Jews for that matter. They're around us. And so after 20 years, Joanne and I moved with our six children back to Texas. We lived in Colorado. We were at 7,400 feet. Summers are nice. Shorts and a sweatshirt. Oh, man, it was so cool. Then we moved to Dallas, Texas. Humidity. Oh, my gosh. It was July. And I remember I was getting in my car. I'd been at our mission headquarters all day. And I just... You see, ever the heat just like, just swarm you to where you feel like you don't get anything done. I thought, what did I do today at the office, you know? I just didn't get that much done. And so I was not, I just wasn't feeling good with the heat. And I got in the car and I thought, my gosh, I got to drive all the way across town to pick up Joanne in the traffic and bring her back. We're going to be so late for this dinner. And oh, I'll get up on the freeway. And I looked at the dashboard and it said six miles till empty. When are you kidding? Okay, I gotta drive off, okay. So I thought, three gas stations, I'll go to the FINA here, and I drive up, stick my card in, and it says, must see cashier. So can I just say that I wasn't exactly in the spirit at that point, and I said, come on, Lord, can I get a break, please, you know? Man, doing your work and all that. And so anyway, I walked in, and I threw the card down, and this Muslim woman walks up we get in this conversation and I said man I just I love your people you're from the Middle East and we practically live there we're there all the time I I just love your people where are you from and she goes you go to the Middle East all the time and I said yeah and she said well then you have to guess where I'm from I said oh wow okay Egypt she said nope Saudi Arabia I said seriously I've always wanted to go there and all that kind of stuff and then all of a sudden I thought I need to say something to her. And I said, you know what? God is honoring your people. And she said, what do you mean? I said, Muslim people, God's honoring your people. She said, what do you mean by that? And I said, Jesus is coming to them in dreams and visions. And I'm sure you probably never even heard about this. It probably sounds like a weird thing to you, but I wrote a book about your people having Jesus dreams and I'd like to give you a copy. I'll run out to the car and she said, you wrote a book about Muslims having G dreams about Jesus? And I said, yeah. And she goes, huh, because I've been having dreams about Jesus. So I said, excuse me a minute. Forgive me, God, for that crack. I realize why I'm here. It's not just to, you know, my schedule. It's not about me. I went out, got the book, gave it to her, and immediately she starts flipping through it, signed the card, took off. Picked up Joanne, we made it to dinner, actually on time, and two days later, was driving in that same area, and I thought, wow, I gotta get gas. Ooh, I'm gonna go to the Phoenix station, and I drove down, and then, ooh, I'm gonna go to that pump. So I drove up the same pump, stuck the card in, guess what, worked perfectly. See, I don't think it was a malfunction that day. It was an order from God. It didn't say, please see cashier. It said, must see cashier, right? So I went in, and there she is, Rowia, reading dreams and visions. She's halfway through. She goes, this book is like a picture of my life. And I said, of your life? Hey, when did you start having Jesus dreams? And she said, over 30 years ago. I said, Jesus started coming to you over 30 years ago. And she said, yes. And I said, well, didn't you ever talk to a Christian or like go to a church and ask questions? I mean, I'm sure you had questions. And she said, I had plenty of them. But every time I was around Christians, I, I don't know, it was like they were afraid of me or something. And, and I just never got any answers. But Jesus kept coming to me at night. And he told me how much he loved me. And he put his arm around me. And, and we would walk. And I never felt so safe with a man in my life. So when Jesus was there. So I just figured if he loved me so much, one of these days he was coming for me. He was gonna tell me about him. And I said, Rui, I think today's that day. And we just shared some scripture. I just walked her through some New Testament scriptures on Jesus and salvation. And I asked her if she wanted to receive Jesus and she said yes. And so in the FINA gas station, we held hands and she prayed to receive Jesus who she'd been looking for 
for over 30 years. And amazingly, nobody walked in. You know, in a gas station, ding, they walk in every three seconds. Nobody walked in. We held hands and prayed. She was so emotional and so thankful. And the reason I tell you that story is, A, because I was being such a jerk that day. My schedule, I'm going to be late. And here is this Muslim woman that lived within blocks of a Christian ministry house that has over 50 ministries and she didn't know about Jesus. I said, God, forgive me, forgive us. And then also I tell the story because there's a lot of Rawiyas out there and they're waiting and they're looking at you and they see you come out of church on Sunday and they see a smile. They hear you pray in restaurants. They wanna know about your Jesus, but nobody's telling them. The Muslims are coming, the Muslims are coming, the Muslims are here. Are we gonna sit back on the couch and be afraid of them and do nothing? Or are we going to engage them? Jesus is already doing it. He's opening their hearts through dreams and visions. Let's go get them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And I believe, Lord, that this is the greatest generation to live in. Outside of the first century with Jesus and the apostles, this is the greatest generation. You're moving so powerfully and you're doing so much and people are so open to the gospel. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't get into our stuff and our busyness and our schedule. Lord, save us from being professional Christians that just are in all the Christian stuff and ignoring the world around us. Muslims or Jews are open like never before. You don't have to use us, but you choose to use us. And you use us when we pray first and then go. So use us, Lord, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for letting us be with you tonight. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.